Welcome back. My name is Justin Bullock, and I'm here again for the sixth and final discussion with some Bush School students on how to improve decision making for public servants. They spent the first half of a course with me uh, wrestling with um, heuristics and decision making biases and trying to figure out when those might affect public servants and ways to improve decision making and protect against those. Um, so this is going to be our last conversation on this topic, but before we go too far down this path, uh, there are four group members with me today, and I'm going to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Kim Van Lee. I'm Madison Moore. I'm Miriam Chiklaz. And I'm Zachary Weimer. Excellent. So, um, the group in their defense, uh, uh, just so the listeners know, they had to wait a whole extra week after being prepared, because uh, we did not get to all the recordings last week. So go gentle on them. <laughs> All right, so tell me about this report. Who wants to get me started? Yeah, I can start. Okay. Uh, the structure of our report is pretty straightforward. For the first half of the mm, report, we identify uh, major biases and effects and heuristics that um, hinder rational decision making. And in the second half of the report, we address them with identifying major uh, strategies that, uh, that should uh, help uh, decision makers in public service to be more rational in their decision making. Uh, before discussing um, each of them, uh, I we should emphasize that um, uh, many decision making models, classical models uh, that identify connection between rationality and decision making, making uh, were economists, but uh, they were recently challenged by neurobiologists, uh, psychologists, behavioral economists, and uh, one of the seminal works um, we had to um, uh, read uh, for the class uh, was Daniel Kahneman's thinking uh, and slow, which provides um, uh, more thorough understanding how our how, uh, mind of uh, humans work, uh, and uh, he provides um, and introduces two major notions uh, on what then our analysis and his uh, analysis in the book is based on. This is system one and system two, like two operational systems of um, our mind, uh, how it works, and um, shortly to describe each of them, uh, system one is um, uh, is very quick. Um, uh, it uh, jumps uh, into decision making and uh, into conclusions generally very quickly. It uh, um, operates below conscious level. It is um, uh, more. Um, it, it does not employ much effort or attention. Uh, so it is more um, intuitive and associative as well. Uh, but um, system two is opposite to all of uh, all I have uh, described um, uh, as a characteristics of a system one. It's more rational. It's more um, ego depleting because it's in, it employs more attention and uh, more effort, mental effort. It does not jump to conclusions uh, quickly. It um, it is employed more when it comes to um, analyzing more uh, complex situations and provides more complex judgments. Um, and uh, why does it matter if we ask ourselves why does this uh, division of system one and system two matter? That matters because uh, human brain is organized in a way that um, the, this division of labor of system between the, among system one and system two um, uh, is in a way that it uh, should improve and increase performance and uh, be also uh, be min um, um, employing and using less effort. 
that's the, the problem I think and concerning when it comes to decision making. So uh, within this uh, knowledge, we know that um, uh, it often to maximize uh, the performance and minimize effort, system one is more often employed, and it takes effort to Im uh, employ and utilize system two. Uh, when it's problematic uh, and when it's um, somehow concerning when it comes to decision making. Uh, authors identify several biases and effects, and I will stress um, several of them. Uh, for example, avail availability biases, uh, availability bias. Um, we know that um, some of the issues prevail in uh, public problems agenda, where some of the issues prevail when we think about uh, public problems, and uh, there must be reason behind uh, that. Um, if we think through the system one and system two and how uh, mind of uh, humans work. Um, and uh, it is because um, the major source of uh, this availability bias, we should say, that is uh, media. Uh, what uh, comes, to our, you know, comes to our mind, what is more frequently communicated as problematic issues, it stays in our mind more because um, uh, our brain gives a little bit more weight to, to what is easy to retrieve from our memory, what is already there, rather than uh, what is um, uh, less exposed to our, uh, our brain. So if we uh, think that uh, what media covers more uh, is in our mind, then yes, that's what we consider the most uh, problematic issues. And uh, one example would be very interesting, for example, um, uh, in media covers 300% more uh, terrorist act that is uh, perpetrated by ma Muslims uh, and uh, was uh, and if the attack was uh, against the non-Muslim population when in reality um, uh, when in reality 70% uh, of all the attacks of the last decade in the US was done by non-Muslim uh, ultra-right uh, white supremacists and uh, if we know that the media is so biased in, uh, in and so um, yeah, so biased in covering them, uh, we should assume that uh, availability bias in our brain, while talking about the terrorism, is is uh, in our brains as well, is there. My uh, media is susceptible uh, when it comes to priming effects as well. Um, that therefore, media media is susceptible to priming influences uh, for our um, brain, resulting in uh, widespread misapprehensions of number of issues. But I'm not going to uh, stress on the priming effect now because we have hollow effect, which is also very uh, interesting and important effect uh, to see when it comes to uh, how this uh, plays out in organizational settings. Um, how effect is uh, when people believe um, the conclusions and are tend to believe uh, arguments which support to those conclusions. And also, if we um, put it in a different uh, words, uh, when we uh, like everything um, about the idea and all of those and about the major idea and all of those which supports to that uh, are. Um, more um, appealing for us, even though they might not be uh, as sound as it should be. Um, also, what is uh, characteristic to uh, Hollow Effect is that first impression counts, and the first impression is um, it's it, the human brain gives um, more weight to a first impression, and all the other impressions are filtered across uh, the first one. And uh, there was a research done about that, and uh, they found out that um, in uh, organizations, when it comes to recruit, uh, evaluating each other's performances, um, when it comes to uh, recruiting members and uh, doing evaluations of candidates, and when it comes to um, promoting some uh, employees, uh, organizations very frequently do um, uh, evaluations, and uh, this is concerning that uh, the, the major finding that some of 
the aspects of uh, evaluators um, evaluate about the employee uh, another it may be co-workers uh, or subordinates or anything uh, it affects other um, uh, other um, units of uh, evaluations for example if they evaluate a person in about the punctuality, they um, uh, in a positive manner they evaluate consequence. Uh, uh, they evaluate um, in the same positive way when it comes to how this employee deals with um, uh, paperwork or something which to which he or she is assigned to. So uh, first impression and evaluation on one aspect influences the evaluation and impression on the other aspect, which is. Um, important to know because organizational decisions are based on those uh, evaluations. And uh, shortly, very shortly about framing effects, um, much depends on uh, how um, proposals, policy proposals are framed um, because uh, if a framing in a negative or in a positive way, way can affect uh, decision making. So that's uh, uh, very much studied uh, when it comes to vaccination and how the vaccination um, uh, benefits and uh, how its uh, potential um, uh, flaws or potential uh, um, effects, uh, negative effects, side effects are framed, um, it guides um, uh, human uh, behavior about getting this vaccination or not. And uh, the same uh, researches is about environmental standards uh, and the policies that introduce environmental standards and uh, transportation infrastructure or some fiscal interventions. Goodness, I think you should just write my lectures for me there. <laughs> well done, yeah. So there's a lot here, right? I mean, you started out talking about how the root of this is pushing back on kind of standard rational models for decision making that had their roots in economics, and that here comes uh, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky in the 70s, essentially, and says, now wait a minute, like, we're not sure we really buy all of these rational man models. How do people actually make decisions? What are the ways in which they're they're biased? What are the ways in which they're suboptimal? What are the ways in which they don't quite attain true rationality? And one of the ways that Kahneman explains this is through a litany, through a list of biases and heuristics, right? And you highlight a, highlight a few of these, availability bias, the halo effect, um, uh, and what was the other one? Framing and framing effect, right? Mm -hmm. I, I was able to summarize most of it, but not all of it, right? And that these are a few of the ones that, uh, that Kahneman and his co-authors and colleagues have found that systematically cause decision-making to deviate from like the rational ideal of getting the outcomes we would like. And that kind of nicely summarizes a good bit of the first part of your report here. Are there any other heuristics or biases that we should touch on before moving on to kind of thinking about attention and some of the other things you cover in your report? Um, uh, yeah, I would say, so we, we also cover status quo, hindsight bias, and perception of fairness. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the other thing, too, that we cover is expert skill and judgment versus the general public, which is, I think, the one that I'd like to talk about a little bit more, because Common said, like, intuition can only be trusted in the absence, or cannot be trusted, excuse me, in the absence of stable regularities in an environment. Yeah. So tell so, me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that'd be great. So, like, you know, in expertise, the collection of skills, is it ever really complete? Like, what is the confidence and even an expert can have in, like, in their intuition? And I think something that's really interesting to that is, one, how that affects public policy, but also experts often value how they value risk. So they often value it quantitatively, while the public would value it qualitatively. Mm -hmm. So experts are going to go, how many people will die, while the public might go, 
how will I die? Mm-hmm. And yeah. there are some deaths that they will go, I would rather not die like that, even though my <laughs> chance yeah. is real low. Um, and there's fear there. Mm-hmm. And it, it is that really tough balance, though, um, of, of balancing and, and saying fear is valid, but also not making policy and reactionary to fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it with the like, availability cascade of how that bias like flows into policy and how a minor event, um, and, and even just in the media that picks up, can end up having really big impacts in mm-hmm. policy. And I think in that, too, it, you can also see it where if enough of the public comes behind mm-hmm. it, even an expert testimony, the public can perceive as being like part of a, a conspiracy theory or part of like a bigger like um, ploy against the, the public because they've mm-hmm. bought, bought into said minor event or said perceived risk. Um, and I think though there, it, and you see it so often, and Marian touched on this too, like with the with terrorism and following 9-11, how the United States restructured a lot of their defense system and the sweeping legislation they passed. Like they've even now gone back and said, you know, some of those things we didn't necessarily need to do. But it also is hindsight 2020. Mm-hmm. In the moment, like, could you really have said you weren't going to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like you look back and go, well, that may have been overreactionary or we may not have done that. Then also, in some of those situations, do you, it is the, do you want to find out if you don't do it? Yeah. Like what are the, and what are the political realities? And what are the well? political yeah. realities? <laughs> and, and in that, like, if you're going to give too much weight to an expert view, you can kind of alienate the public and produce policy that they reject. But then if you give it too much to the public's view, it can be um, controlled by fear. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to ever, as a public servant, give the idea that you have a low perception or a callous attitude towards death or towards risk. Mm-hmm. But it is such a tricky balance yeah. of, of like recognizing it and seeing it and, and valuing it, but also not like running with it or being run by it. Yeah, the, the evaluating risk uh, between the difference between experts and the general public uh, is a uh, is one that I don't think people pay a lot of attention to. That Kahneman highlights, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the other the other piece of this that I think is interesting is thinking about which situations are experts likely to be good and which situations are they likely to not do such a good job with. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the more informative things I think that comes out of Kahneman's work uh, and some of the people that he mentions in the book, which is decisions that are that are clearly defined, right, and that you get immediate feedback on are ones that are really good for becoming an expert in. Mm-hmm. Some of these others almost are almost impossible to become experts in because either the problem isn't clearly defined or there's not a lot of feedback. Mm-hmm. So like when you think about people who are trying to predict like what is the stock market going to be in a year or predict like what GDP is going to be or what m- might be the next political scandal, which all like talking heads sit around and talk about. Those aren't really things that you can actually predict with any regularity. It's outside of what experts can really learn because it's not necessarily a clearly defined problem with lots of immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. Like where chess is like, I think the example that Kahneman uses of one that is like clearly expert, right? It's clearly defined rules and a clearly defined space and you get feedback every time you, uh, every time you play. So I think both those, how they evaluate risk and then what types of situations are they likely to be good at and then what types of situations like, should we say like, you know, that's nonsense. Like we don't find that, right? What else? Well, you know. To carry on slightly that chess analogy, or maybe actually a better way to think about it would be like a toolbox. One of the things to, that's important to understand about these biases and heuristics is that they are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. This is simply describing how your mind works. 
Uh, there's nothing you can really do to prevent these things from happening in your brain, but what you can understand is the tools that your brain has at its disposal and understand when it's appropriate to engage each one. Uh, to avoid jumping to conclusions when more rumination is required, or to avoid making assumptions and seeing patterns from previous experiences that aren't really there. And it's also important to remember that it's not just you that's thinking this way. When you're making decisions, when you're gathering information especially, it's important to remember that the person on the other side of that information, the person generating that information, and the people disseminating it, also are subject to these sorts of heuristics and decision-making biases. Mm -hmm. A good example of that is um, the emphasis that's come about in the last couple of decades uh, on information literacy. Now, I'm married to a librarian, so obviously this is something that gets discussed in my house all the time. Um, but it's actually a pretty significant issue. The idea is the ability to take information that's coming in and to accurately ascertain what is good information, what's bad information, and when different aspects of that information are being magnified or minimized inappropriately so that they don't actually represent reality. Mm -hmm. Um, this pulls in a lot of the different biases that we've already talked about. Understanding how confirmation bias works is one part of using the internet. Understanding that the information you're looking at is not only, not only will you have a tendency to click on and follow and read articles that confirm your pre-existing notions, thereby shutting you off from other ideas, but because the way that search engines and computer use is modeled off of our brains and is made to present to us information that we will like and want to follow, that confirmation bias and that availability bias is hardwired into the way that search algorithms actually present you the information. They keep track of what information you already have and present you with related topics, similar authors, people who are already in agreement. This ends up creating this sort of network of individuals all saying the same thing and sometimes repeating information that's all come from one source over and over and over and because the digital medium is so easy to disseminate that and you end up with what they call the echo chamber, mm -hmm. where one person says something, and it's not so much that you're speaking into a chamber and you're looking for people that agree with you, but one person says something and it's repeated so many times that it's taken as a consensus that's not actually there. Um, another good example of, of these tools that we have at our uh, disposal, we're going to talk in a moment here about uh, a real basic level that all of these have in common is our ability to pay attention to different things. That we have a very limited amount of this and that's part of what determines whether we are able to engage our system one or our system two thinking. That system one is going to be our default because it takes less energy. We are evolutionarily designed to spend as little energy as possible to keep our you know, meat robot bodies alive uh, because calories are precious. So if we can run a, a calculation or an evaluation of our environment on that system one very quick pattern recognition stimulus response way, that's going to be our default. And so recognizing the different things that are going to make us more or less likely to engage our system two. Um, we're going to get into, I believe Ken's going to talk about different physical responses and different mental uh, disciplines that you can use that will help you train your brain, not so much to avoid heuristics or biases, or these different things, but just to understand the tools you have and to be agile in their application. Not just to, uh, to follow your natural inclination, but to understand how these things work and when it's appropriate to apply them. Yeah, one, one thing, and then uh, I want to hear what Kim has to say about uh, some of these strategies, but um, you, you know, the term that, it's, it's kind of fun, the word we use for, right? We use the word pay attention, mm -hmm. as if like attention comes at some type of cost. And I think Kahneman does a nice job highlighting this uh, 
and, and Zach, you do a nice job of, of kind of summarizing this, which is system one, and, and Miriam did as well, uh, we end up kind of having something like a lazy system two because it requires a cost to engage in system mm -hmm. two. And it, it causes ego depletion, it causes uh, extra resources to be devoted to it. And so this idea of paying something, paying some cost, has, is a, has a really true biological underlying in the way that the mind is structured that to, to pay, to, to focus our attention requires paying some sort of cost for it. And I think that's a really important way to think about uh, the challenges we have with engaging in System 2 because it's not free to engage System 2. System 1 kind of is free and sometimes unwanted. Not only is it free, but we don't even want it to be telling us what it's telling us. Where System 2 really comes at some type of cost and we have limited amounts of, of attention space to pay, to, to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Yes, that leads directly into my part of the paper. Good! So Kahneman states that the ability to pay attention is foundational to controlling our thoughts, behaviors, and our emotions, through our capacity to pay, though our capacity to pay attention is limited. So how can we increase our attention span, our ability to process information better? So there are ways, there are proven ways to approach, um, to train your attention. You can increase it and maintain your attention through consistent mindfulness meditation. So this form of meditation is a broad range of practice that promotes a non-judgmental, non-reactive state of awareness that may improve executive control and relatedly modifying your automatic behaviors. So what it can do is it can improve your emotional awareness. And emotional awareness has been studied a lot in the past couple of decades in regards to how you're managing your emotions, how you're managing the emotions of others around you, and also how you're interacting with the information you're receiving and you're giving back. So mindfulness is one of the ways, this is something we've talked about in class, you know, one of the questions that comes up is, okay, well, we have this short attention span, we have to pay these costs, you know, what can we do about it? And Kahneman himself is, as he says in the book, uh, um, is fairly pessimistic about ways to improve our ability to engage in system two. But I think this is, I think this is right, that the mindfulness practice is one way to uh, to strengthen or lengthen your ability to pay attention to certain things. Uh, and the practice of it, that's kind of what the practice is, observing what's going on around you a little bit more carefully and a little bit more deliberately. Mm -hmm. Correct. And there were some other considerations for other approaches in regards to um, improving your decision making. I found a lot of research on just having a restful night of sleep. Mm, yeah. So there were... <laughs> Getting sleep. Who yeah, would have restful <laughs> night of sleep. So there's yeah, a military research in regards to um, depriving military men of sleep for 18 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, and what that does to their skill sets or how they approach problem-solving issues. So it has a great impact. And also eating healthy meals, very simple. And lastly, to seek your colleagues' feedback. So if you're a public servant, it's important to seek your uh, colleagues' feedback because they have an outside perspective and they're able to assess the situation better than you can because you're in your, you don't have access to that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so kind of laying out the, the overall uh, thrust of the paper and then if they're missing anything important you wanna leave your listeners with, let me know. But essentially, you know, from the beginning we talked about how uh, Kahneman really highlights the ways in which we are systematically not rational, right? And that we are victims 
because of how our brains work to these different cognitive biases and heuristics that had some useful evolutionary purpose at some point, but and go awry in some situations, right? And on top of that, uh, we the way in which we can control that is through paying attention, uh, using uh, information better, and those things require kind of cognitive resources that in general we deplete with use. And so what do we do about that? Well, one thing to do is uh, that has some evidence with it is mindfulness practice, right? That can lengthen the ability of time that you can focus on something. It can improve your clarity of paying attention to what's going on around you. Um, and then there are these things that seem kind of basic but that people don't do, right? Get a restful night of sleep. If you get four or five hours of sleep perpetually, that's bad for you. Not only is it bad for your health, it's bad for your ability to make good decisions, right? Eat good, healthy food, right? I mean, not only does that help your body stay healthy, but it turns out that has a direct relationship with, um, with your mind as well. Seeking feedback from peers and colleagues to get a more honest opinion of is, are your decisions lining up with good outcomes when sometimes you can't see that yourself, right? These are kind of pretty clear, straightforward things, but things that we just sometimes often ignore and don't uh, engage in in the way that we should. Very good. Any closing thoughts that we haven't already hit on that you would like to make sure the listeners have? Good. Nice and quick. <laughs> Easy. All right. Thank you so much for your work. Uh, thanks for sharing this with the, uh, the listeners. I think you guys and gals do a really great job of laying out the basic parameters and then uh, providing some potential solutions. So thank you so much.